Hey there, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore, and you are listening to a podcast about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, Matt and I will be talking about John Woo's first contemporary action movie since, I think, Mission Impossible 2, the Netflix original Manhunt a loose remake of a novel that was the basis of a 1976 Japanese adaptation, now given the full John Woo treatment of slow motion, double-fisted guns, and yes, doves. Oh yeah, you better believe there are doves. Manhunt actually takes place in Osaka, Japan, but given the place of pride John Woo has in the history of Hong Kong cinema, that's what we're going to be devoting the second part of this episode to. Specifically, we're going to be recommending some Hong Kong action movies that are available to rent or stream at home right now. But first, let's get grandiose and talk about Manhunt. Here's how things work here at Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. You, the listener, tell us what you'd like us to review next. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or shows, and we let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Last time, your choices were BPM, Beats Per Minute, Robin Campillo's uh, critically beloved 2017 film about AIDS activism in France in the 90s, which is on Hulu. Manhunt, John Woo's latest, currently streaming as a Netflix original, and Psychokinesis, a South Korean superhero movie from Train to Busan director Yeon Sang-ho, also streaming as a Netflix original. I'll confess, Matt, I was really rooting for Psychokinesis, uh, but it didn't stand a chance. (laughs) BPM and Manhunt left it far behind, with Manhunt ultimately winning, I think with some support from you, Matt. Um, there's something a little strange and maybe even a little sad about a film from John Woo who pioneered this particular flavor of bombastic big screen entertainment uh, coming out with almost no fanfare on Netflix. Uh, Then again, as far as I can tell from some poking around, Woo's last film, the two-part $48 million disaster movie The Crossing, didn't come out in the U.S. at all. I couldn't find a U.S. distributor. Uh, Wu, who established himself as this remarkable action stylist in the 80s and 90s with Hong Kong thrillers like A Better Tomorrow and The Killer and Hard Boiled, uh, came to the U.S. to make films like Hard Target, Face Off, Excellent, <laughs> and Wind Talkers, not so excellent. Uh, and then went back to Asia, where he worked on historical epics, uh, you know, like The Crossing and like Red Cliff. So Manhunt is actually his first film to be set in the present day. Uh, in what's our in in his first Hong Kong film to be set in the present day, and what's approaching two decades, uh, albeit a present day in which uh, there's an ominous ph- pharmaceutical company producing a drug that creates super soldiers, you know, as you do. Wu has himself described the film as a throwback to his '90s Hong Kong days. Uh, Manhunt is this Pan-Asian production. It stars a Chinese actor named Jang Han Yu as this unusually badass lawyer at the pharmaceutical company who gets framed for murder. And Japanese actor Masaharu uh, Fukuyama as an unusually badass detective who's uh, tracking him down. Starts to suspect there's more to the case. There's also a pair of female assassins, uh, one of them played by South Korean actress Ha Ji Woo, ha, ha Ji Won, and the other played by John Woo's daughter, Angelus Wu. Uh, there's also a grief-stricken half-Chinese, half-Japanese heiress, or I'm not quite sure what she is, uh, a rookie cop, the evil pharmaceutical head and his chosen heir, a convoluted plot that ultimately doesn't really matter. Uh, so let's kick up our discussion with this, Matt. Did Manhunt feel to you like a return to form for Wu? Or like a self-referential self-parody? And does it actually matter when it comes to how enjoyable the movie might be? Well, I found it was more the latter than the former in terms of your descriptions. To me, the way I would describe this movie is, or the comparison I would make is... It's kind of like when the Rolling Stones make a new album these days and there's like one really good song on it and you're like, wow, the Rolling Stones, they still have, you know, they still got it. 
And then you listen to the next song, and yeah, it sounds like the Rolling Stones, but it's like doesn't have a very good melody, and you know you'll never listen to it again. And then you listen to the next song, and it almost sounds like a band that's trying to be the Rolling Stones, like a bad knockoff. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt like this movie was for John Woo. Like there are there are some scenes in it that are that are just as good as classic John Woo, and then there are other scenes in it that are. are pretty bad and then and 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 scenes where it feels like uh like a, a filmmaker who is trying to imitate john woo of which there were many i mean he is was one of the most influential mm-hmm. filmmakers of that you know in that era in the 90s when he was really cranking out those incredible action films in hong kong i mean his style really influenced uh you know action filmmakers all over the world and, you know, at times this movie felt to me like one of those, like those bad knockoffs. Um, there are, like I said, there are some scenes that are good. There's some action scenes that, that are pretty decent. But I, I, I just thought that, um, like, overall, just the plot was so convoluted and silly and, and I couldn't follow it and didn't really care to. And I thought the movie looked weirdly cheap. Um, like, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know how much money he had in his old films and how much compared to what he had for this movie, but like this movie looks so much worse than those classic films. Even if, you know, let's say that they were shot on film and maybe they haven't been restored. They might look a little old, but just in terms of like the cheapness of the sets and the costumes and everything, I thought this movie just, it just looked cheap. It just looked like a direct to video movie, which I guess in America it it is a direct to Netflix anyway. And, and yeah, I didn't think some of the acting was all that great. I, I thought, uh, I thought, uh, I thought, uh, Zhang Han Yu was pretty good. I thought he really had the old, you know, like the classic, uh, you know, he felt like a John Woo hero to me, but Masaharu Fukuyama, who plays, uh, the detective, uh, Yamura, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, he, uh, he didn't really <laughs> win me over. There were times where I felt like, like I was almost watching like, like the Mel Brooks version of a of a John Woo, like a spoof of a John Woo movie, and he was like, you know, he was like mm-hmm. the Steve, you cast like the Steven Weber, who's like he looks kind of handsome, but he's also kind of goofy. Like I don't know, dude, he just didn't mm-hmm. he didn't really pull it across for me. So I was looking forward to this one. I was rooting for this one to win, and I got to say, I was overall, I was I was pretty disappointed. Yeah, I really enjoyed the start of this movie. Uh, you know, in which there is this kind of weird loaded scene in which uh, the main character, the lawyer, comes to this this sake bar, and and uh, unbeknownst to him, has kind of like walked into an assassination. Right. That actually doesn't really seem to matter. <laughs> You know, looking back at it and trying to kind of untangle this plot, like, was that just an accident? <laughs> Does that actually have anything to do with what happened later? I think maybe not necessarily, except for uh, endearing himself to one of the assassins. Right. I think that's um, it. But I, I think that that's it. Yeah. But I enjoyed that scene. I enjoyed this just kind of like these two women shooting up, you know, this this restaurant if there's one thing that I do, you know, I, I think that John Woo has always done well. It is to, you know, have people totally shoot up uh, and wreck a location uh, with their, with an action sequence. But yes, uh, this one lost me pretty fully, like uh, just in terms of any emotional involvement in the movie. I, I don't think it helps that this movie is is kind of, uh, lo- I don't know, what's the good way? It's it kind of has no location you know it has no kind of like cultural grounding that you have a lot of this movie because of these characters and actors who are supposed to be from different countries uh you have a lot of this movie taking place in english which the actors are different degrees of comfortable with but which is the the kind of first language for almost none of them uh except for maybe angelus Wu, who who speaks kind of american accented english uh, for a lot of them, like they really kind of sometimes struggle to deliver these really chintzy lines. Um, you know, what's I, I really I wrote down? Trust me, there's only one end for a fugitive, a, a dead end. <laughs> a challenging line for anyone to deliver. 
But I think especially when uh, you have a lot of these actors speaking in what is clearly not uh, their first language. And then also you have, I think, like there's some obvious dubbing going on, you know, when, say, a Chinese actress is required to speak Japanese. And the movie doesn't make a lot of effort to to make this look seamless. <laughs> there's like, uh, I, I appreciated that it almost got at... Uh, approached a, a kind of like point it was making with the ways in which all of these all of these different uh, people were jumping uh, languages and trying to kind of like and and sometimes like almost approaching code switching uh, how they behave but I don't think that was anything in necessarily adding up to a, a larger pattern mostly it just seemed uh, like it put all the actors uh, on grounds that they didn't feel super comfortable with uh, and I think that's especially true. Uh, for the Japanese lead who, yes, I would agree, is like in his own movie. And it's a very, very outlandish movie in which he might be a little drunk. <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of like like lists his way through uh, in ways that I, I, it felt like the stuff of comedy, but it didn't feel like it was really intentionally the stuff of comedy. Um, so, yeah, I, it was really difficult to invest in this and I think that's one of the things with Wu's films as well is that they've always been big and they've been prone to ridiculous plot twists uh, I don't know if you remember in A Better Tomorrow 2 uh, it dealt with the fact that Chow Yun-Fat had been killed off in the first film and they wanted him back by bringing him back as the character's twin brother Yep. you know a classic uh, a classic twist uh but, but that has never mattered so much because they took them so seriously. There was a deep sincerity with which they committed to all of this bombast and to, to, to sometimes ridiculousness. And I don't feel that there's that sincerity in this movie at all. No, there's a little bit of kind of a uh, pastiche quality to it. I mean, that gets to the uh, you know the feeling that it feels almost like someone pretending to make a John Woo movie instead of John Woo making a John Woo movie. Um, it 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 does have the feeling of of like an homage or in its worst moments of like a spoof. And um, yeah, you're right in terms of the 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 Japanese lead uh, Masaharu Fukuyama, like. I think you described it pretty well. He 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 just it, he he does. There were times where I was like, "Does he think this is a comedy?" Like I honestly wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure. And maybe if everyone was treating the movie that way, maybe it would work. But you know, it, uh, Zhang Hanyu as as the Chinese lead, he's doing like kind of like he's doing like Chow Yun Fat. He's doing like the very serious, mm -hmm. very intense you know, uh, guy, which is totally appropriate for his character because he's basically Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Um, so they just, they just seem totally at odds. They do, like, I think you put it well. They seem like they are in completely different movies. And yes, the fact that they have to speak in English a lot does not help. The fact that there is a lot of awkward dubbing does not help. It's weird. Like, I didn't expect this movie to look like the badly dubbed versions of John Woo movies that I sometimes, <laughs> that you would like when you were a kid, I'm speaking for myself here, when you, when I was a kid going to the video store and like sometimes the, the blockbuster by your house wouldn't have the better subtitled version. You would have to settle for the dubbed John Woo movie. You'd have to have watched like the, the killer dubbed or hard-boiled dubbed and it was never mm -hmm. as good. And this movie like switches back and forth. Some scenes is, is subtitles and then suddenly they're talking in English and then sometimes their English is very clearly dubbed and it's, it's and as you said, it's really bad. I mean, it's one thing to be dubbed but there's good dubbing and there's bad dubbing in this movie. It doesn't look like they were trying really at all. It's, it's, it's very very poor right. dubbing and it, and it is it's frustrating and i think and i think the other problem is just the movie gets so silly by the end of it like you said this is there's like super soldier serums there's this you know people are getting superpowers essentially there's this and, and it's all taking place in this lab which again that was the part that i thought looked really really cheap like it looked like they threw up a couple of yeah like, it looked like a sci-fi like a sci-fi series like sci-fi network series of yeah. the old days there's um the last universal soldier sequel that went that that played in theaters universal soldier the return ends in like a sci-fi uh you know laboratory set that looks 
I mean, it looks just like this. And if, if your movie, I'm comparing your movie to the look of Universal Soldier, The Return, you're in big, big trouble. I didn't think that this movie was entirely a mess. Like, it is a mess. I think, like, incontrovertibly, it's a mess. But there are moments where even when it's it does seem like pastiche, like the sequence in which the the two leads are in, I think, like, a mini Cooper <laughs> and they smash into like a cage of doves. And it's not just that the doves, which are a signature of Don Wu's, of course, like fly out. It's that they become like a plot point. They help one of the characters uh-huh. <laughs> like distra- they cause a distraction. And I, the silliness of that, I thought at that, at least in that moment was fairly joyous. And I also wanted to point out, the the fact that one of the characters keeps like a shrine in her house her bloody wedding dress <laughs> from <laughs> from and then there's a moment where she's explaining what happened yeah. and the two characters walk up to what looks like it's like the flashback of the wedding but it's actually just someone else's wedding happening in the same spot and sure. then you have a flashback to her wedding sure in which you see that the groom drove all the way up to where she was waiting to marry him and then committed suicide. <laughs> but you have that amazing and shot with that, the blood on the wedding dress though. That was cool. Uh, exactly. Well, that's how you get the wedding dress that you then keep in a special room. Right. Uh, so that you can forever remember <laughs> this thing that happened to you. Yes. I mean that like stuff like that, if there was more of that, which is, is over the top, but there's like, I, I think a kind of glee to it. As opposed to the incoherence of the ends, I think I would have liked this more. Yeah. The one scene that I thought was really, really good and reminded me of, like, the the classic John Woo, although I thought the action in general, it was more heavily edited uh, and choppy than I would have – than you expected in, like, the classic – in The Killer, in Hard Boiled, in A Better Tomorrow. Like, the classic John Woo films, the thing you loved about them was that they were so clear, that the, that the, the action was always so coherent and so clear, and there was a minimum of editing. And here there there was a lot more editing, I felt. And I don't know if that was – uh, him trying to kind of adapt to modern tastes and sensibilities, and it was purposeful. I don't know if, again, if it was because they had a smaller budget or less time and this was the best that they could do. I don't know if maybe the actors he was working with are as la- athletic as Chow Yun-Fat or Tony Lung back in the day were. I mean, th- they basically were – they could do their own stunts, a lot of them. You know, they they were able to really carry – um, their end of the bargain, essentially. And so I don't know if these actors um, have that same level of, of action, martial arts training, and whatnot. So any of those things could be the reason. I honestly don't know. But they, they did look, the action scenes in general, were a little more choppy than I would have liked or expected from John Woo. But the scene that I liked was the one where the two guys get um, handcuffed together. Uh, it's almost like it was like someone saw the Defiant Ones. John Woo watched the Defiant Ones. And was like that would be a good idea for like a crazy action scene where my heroes are chained together and they have to like hand each other guns or weapons and they're constantly like throwing each other around and sliding around. Like I thought that was a very clever scene and it it reminded me of of classic John Woo uh, in a way that I found very very pleasing. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Even though at that moment you're like what is that guy doing? <laughs> They're like they've just been like shot at, I think. And you're like that was a terrible strategic move. Yeah, it was a bad uh, idea. Uh, to to. <laughs> but yes, but I would agree. That that sequence I enjoyed. Yeah. Um also I I something I couldn't stand uh, the moment in the ending of this movie in which a character says for a better tomorrow. <laughs> it was one of the more unearned <laughs> patting themselves on the back kind of moments. Like, Oh, uh, I did want to say before we wrap this up, uh, I had never heard of the Japanese manhunt. Had you? Nope. Yeah. Apparently. I mean, I don't think that it made, a big impact over uh, like in the US but apparently it was uh, one of the first foreign films uh, to be shown after the end of the cultural revolution so it kind of has a particular uh, place in the hearts uh, of kind of Chinese, Chinese audiences who grew up then especially for its uh, lead actor Takakura Ken who passed away in I think 2014 and, I, and in some ways maybe like inspired this film but I was 
need to read about that. Uh, and that I don't know that this movie really <laughs> serves as a, a, a kind of um, gesture of affection towards this this movie I haven't seen. In that it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really feel like anything specific. It does feel just kind of like a mishmash of different ideas jammed into a single feature. Yeah, I don't think this manhunt is going to replace it in the hearts of the fans of the original film. I just that's just a feeling that I have here. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Manhunt. Uh, you can find it on Netflix. So even though this was not a Hong Kong production, it's not set in Hong Kong, Manhunt, we are going to be talking about some Hong Kong action films. And Matt, when you suggested this as a as a topic, I was kind of daunted just even beginning, looking uh, trying to figure out where to begin, because there are so many... Hong Kong action films and multiple eras of Hong Kong action films. Yeah, that's true. I mean, to, I guess to me, it's just I just so closely associate that phrase Hong Kong action films with John Woo. I mean, to me, he is the the god of of that that sort of subgenre. And so to me, is like the only the obvious choice for a podcast, although I didn't end up recommending any other John Woo movies. But um, pretty much all the classic ones are great. And if you haven't watched them, you definitely should. And you should definitely watch all of them before you watch Manhunt, because it is a pale, a pale imitation of those, those greats. I always, my favorite was always Hard Boiled. I know a lot of people love The Killer the best. The Killer is very good, but I've always been a, a big Hard Boiled fan myself. That's always been my favorite. Mm, an excellent choice. But yeah, then you know you start looking back, and then you have like the Shaw Brothers movies. You have, I, I mean, there's like multiple eras of, of Hong Kong action, you know, Johnny Toe, uh, go, you know, working today with his uh, different movies, including his kind of triad movies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot. There's a long there's a long history there. And uh, it, I, I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to pick. And I ended up picking two maybe slightly weird ones. But uh, why don't I start with one since I just mentioned the Shaw Brothers uh, I went with a Shaw Brothers pick for my first pick. Uh, I picked Come Drink With Me, which is their 1966 uh, Wuxia film. It's available on Amazon for streaming, but that version is dubbed. And I tried to watch it and found it quickly so annoying that I rented it instead. The rentable version allows you to pick which language the audio is in and what kind of subtitle you want. So I would opt for that. But uh, this is a kind of famous uh, King Hu production. Uh, that's a director set in the Ming Dynasty and starring Chung Pei Pei, who would then go on to, years later, star in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, as well as Yue Hua as these two different warriors. There's a little bit of intrigue, but it's a pretty straightforward movie. It's one about a uh, general's son who is kidnapped, and Chung plays a character named Golden Swallow. She'd go on to later play that character again in a movie of that name. Uh, She is the daughter of the general, and she's sent to free her brother after he's taken by these bandits who are looking to free their own leader. She disguises herself as a man, but it's funny in that she's already got this reputation as this tough guy, and she backs it up uh, with these occasional interventions by Fan Da Pei, who's this drunk beggar who also happens to be a master of the martial arts. Uh, in this neat reversal, she's the hot-headed one. She is the one who's always rushing into a fight uh, and sometimes into a really kind of ill-advised fight, whereas he's He's the one who advises holding back and observing and uh, biding your time. So you have this this one character who is passing himself off as a fool, but who's actually a formidable martial arts master. And then you have another character who is uh, not afraid to to show her skill, but is also in some ways disguising herself, at least uh, in terms of how she presents her gender. Um, and I, I, I like that, that dynamic, and I really like the fight sequences in this. Uh, this film is considered a kind of landmark of the wuxia film because of, of, I would say, primarily the way its fights are presented. They're really elegant, uh, and they really 
they focus on the pauses in the action, uh, maybe more so than the actual action itself. These characters kind of, you know, are looking at each other and trying to figure out their, their way in, and then there'll be like a burst of action. And it looks like, you know, compared to maybe the way, way later movies would be or movies that we've seen more recently, uh, it looks really restrained. Uh, but the action is just shot so cleanly. It's composed so beautifully uh, that even in these fights, it should be chaotic in which Golden Swallow is facing these large collections of opponents. Sometimes she goes and ends up facing down like the whole set of bandits she's gone up against, which frankly, strategically does not seem like a great idea, no matter how tough you are. But these fights look great. Uh, they are ones in which you're really made to feel... Uh, the way in which someone who is unrealistically great at fighting could take on a whole group of opponents. So it's not the most, uh, I would say, thematically rich movie. It is basically about how uh, Golden Swallow eventually ends up teaming up with Fan Da Pei and they, you know, save the day. There is an evil abbot who turns out to have uh, shared history with fun, but it eh, it's mostly just like a movie about cool fights. It happens to have a female fighter in its lead, uh, which is extremely enjoyable. So uh, if you are looking to get into this particular era of martial arts movies, this is a pretty good one to start with. Come drink with me. And it's available for rental and there's a dubbed version on Amazon. All right. That's a good pick. I've never seen that movie. It sounds pretty good. My first pick, um, and for me, like I was, you know, I was saying, and when, when I hear that phrase Hong Kong action movie, like obviously there's, uh, there's many great action movies from many different eras in, uh, in Hong Kong. But to me, like that calls to mind like certain things. And so that's, that's what I sort of, I sort of tailored my picks to that, which is, you know, it makes me think of cops and criminals, um, preferably where the cops and the criminals are more similar than they might appear, uh, shootouts, um, you know, so I don't want to, you know, like to me, like I wouldn't pick a movie that was just about fight scenes. I wouldn't pick a movie about like a an action circus acrobat. Got to be cops, got to be criminals. I have a very specific set of parameters here. So my first pick, <laughs> uh, almost to me like one of these kind of er films of the Hong Kong action subgenre, if it is a subgenre. And that is 1985's Police Story starring and directed by Jackie Chan. Uh, it is currently available on 2B TV, or if you have a Canopy subscription, you can watch it on Canopy. It's the first of six police story movies that Jackie Chan has made over the course of his career. He plays Inspector Kevin Chan, who uh, in this very violent, gun-heavy opening sequence, he uh, busts this major criminal kingpin guy, but... Putting him behind bars permanently will require the testimony of this key witness. So Jackie has to protect the witness at all costs. And then the bad guys get out of jail. And they try to frame Jackie for the murder of another police officer. And um, the action scenes in this film are... Unsurprisingly, they are completely incredible. This is like uh, Jackie Chan at his absolute physical peak... And really coming into his own in terms of being a director as well. Uh, the final sequence, which is uh, this big, crazy fight in a shopping mall, is considered one of the, the best uh, sequences in Jackie Chan's career. And it, 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 it earns it. Um, it has all these great little bits, but it, even, it has this really famous stunt where Jackie Chan jumps from a balcony onto this giant pole that's like covered in Christmas lights, and then he slides all the way down at multiple stories. There's like light bulbs exploding all around him, and he he like falls through this little booth underneath, and then he gets up and he keeps running. It's just ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Um, and they show it like three times in a row in the movie. It's like so cool. They just break the laws <laughs> of of continuity editing and they just show it to you from like three different angles because it's it's worth it um the, the big difference with a with like a police story and something by a john woo or or like a ringo lamb who's another really great hong kong action director is their films tend to be very 
melodramatic, very operatic. You know, John Woo has these big operatic emotions, heightened emotions. A lot of times there's very tragic endings for some of the characters. Um, But that's not really Jackie Chan's style. He's much more, generally speaking, much more uh, comedic in in nature. And so Police Story does have some intense sequences, but it also has these wonderful comedic interludes. There's a terrific scene, which is like something out of Charlie Chaplin, where Jackie Chan finds himself in charge of an entire police station, this small-town police station, and all the phones on all the desks are ringing, and so he has to keep sliding around on his wheelie chair from one to the next, uh, trying to answer all the phones, putting people on hold, getting wrapped up in the wires, and also at the same time trying to talk to his girlfriend, who is played by a very young Maggie Chung, which, let me tell you, when I rewatched this movie, and it was Maggie Chung playing uh, Jackie Chan's girlfriend. That definitely blew my mind. Um, (laughs) Several of the Police Story sequels um, got released back in the late 90s when all of a sudden Jackie became kind of a hot commodity in America and they started dubbing and releasing his movies here in theaters. Police Story 3 became Super Cop. Police Story 4 became Jackie Chan's First Strike. So I had seen those in the theater, but because Police Story was a little older, it's 1985, I had only ever seen it as a kid on like a really badly dubbed VHS. So it was actually cool. I watched this on Canopy and I really enjoyed getting to see it subtitled and appreciating the original sound, the original sound effects, um, and not having to hear bad dubbing. Um, so that was, to me, like, that's the way to watch it. I really, I really got a kick out of seeing that. And if you're looking for, you know, good Hong Kong action with a, with a lighter touch, with more of a comedic touch, this is one of the best. It is a police story, and it is available right now on Tubi TV or on Canopy. Uh, that's a great pick. And it's one I haven't seen for a long time. Um, so I, it's interesting to hear you kind of relate Hong Kong action in your head so much to this one particular era and also to, you know, kind of like cops and criminals, uh, as the subject matter, because my second pick, I think in some ways exists in the intersection between that kind of cops and criminals movie and the, uh, the Kung Fu movie. It is a movie called Ricky O, The Story of Ricky. It's streaming on Fandor. Have you heard of this movie, Matt? Oh, of course. <laughs> this would be the 1981. Uh, it's kind of a martial arts movie. It's kind of a prison thriller directed by Lam Na Choi. And it's actually based on a, a Japanese comic book, on a manga called Ricky O. Though the manga itself is about a character who learns uh, and gets these almost supernatural abilities from, well, basically supernatural abilities from uh, a kind of Chinese martial arts background, as far as I can tell. It's set in the future in the year 2001, uh, in which prisons have been privatized and there's an incentive to keep prisoners around because they're valuable, cheap labor. Matt, can you imagine such a future? Never. (laughs) Never. Never. Uh, Fancy Wong plays Ricky, who arrives in prison at the start of the movie. Uh, we see in flashbacks that he ended up there after murdering the parties responsible for the death of his girlfriend. And uh, we see that he learned his incredible, uh, impossible martial arts prowess from his uncle, who taught him Qigong. Um, and because of it, Ricky seems to be invincible or close to invincible. He can get hurt, but he really seems to shrug it off fairly easily. Uh, and he's also capable of the kind of violence. I, I feel like the best way to describe it is that you would expect to see in the doodles, like the sketches of a, a bored 12 year old boy in class who's been listening to a lot of death metal, <laughs> you know, just like violence on a scale that is like hilarious and ludicrous. Uh, but also sometimes even more effective for the fact that it's done with these, uh, sometimes fairly crude practical special effects. So Ricky is capable of punching through flesh and punching heads apart and punching gashes in people's stomachs. Uh, He can slap eyeballs out of heads. Uh, There's one point where he's in a fight with someone who, in an attempt to defeat him, pulls out his own intestines and tries to strangle Ricky with them. Uh, Ricky also is kept buried alive (laughs) for seven days. (laughs) And recovers astonishingly. 
well. <laughs> uh, he is, however, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I, there are two things I will say about this movie. Uh, the plot of which is basically that, that Ricky fights his way through this corrupt prison system, ultimately facing down the warden who turns out to have his own supernatural martial arts abilities. So I, this is a movie that feels like a, a martial arts movie at its core, like a kind of old school wuxia movie, even though it's not like a, they're not necessarily a lot of people flying around on wires, but it is a, a movie informed by the idea of like a kind of mythology of martial arts in which the extreme end of your, uh, of your skill goes into the supernatural realm, right? Allows you special powers. Uh, at the same time, this is also a kind of melodramatic prison movie. And Ricky, for all that he is a supernatural badass, also is this very sad-eyed guy who gets emotionally involved in abused prisoners in a way that, that he doesn't even know them, but like gets really upset when other, other prisoners um, suffer at the hands of the system or their fellow prisoners. Uh, and he's you know, kind of becomes this hero of, of prisoners' rights uh, in which he, even the people who try and kill him, he sees solidarity with. Uh, and I found something about that. This movie is like, it's both ridiculous and like very compelling. And I think it's because it exists in this intersection of these different traditions of action movie in Hong Kong. You know, it is... It is both about uh, Kung Fu and it is about uh, this more, I don't know if I want to say realistic, but like certainly more grounded in the present day kind of idea of, of a criminal uh, hierarchy and, and a character who is trying to point out that they are made to fight each other for power. And uh, whereas what they really should be fighting is the system. And, I really enjoyed it. You can find it on Fandor. You, if you watch it, you will notice that there are clips in it that you've probably seen uh, pulled and maybe memed somewhere else. There's one in particular of someone getting their head smashed, like smashed to bits, uh, like a kind of cartoon version of something that happens in Game of Thrones. And uh, it's kind of delightful. Riccio, the story of Ricky, you can find it on Fandor. Yes, a masterpiece. I can't remember what show. there. Maybe it was The Daily Show with Craig Kilborn. I could be mistaken, but some show <laughs> used to use right. it before the days of the internet and the meme. It was like a pre-internet meme, internet meme. They used to like use random clips on it on some late night show. I want to say it was The Daily Show with Craig Kilborn, but I, I could be wrong. Someone will write in and tell us, I'm sure. Um, for my second pick, I wanted to do something a little more recent because even though I really associate that phrase Hong Kong action with, with John Woo and, and his contemporaries, you know, the genre didn't end uh, when he decided to stop making these movies for a while. And in, and a lot of ways, the, the genre has really thrived lately thanks to, um, some talented new filmmakers, some talented new stars, and the fact that they're the international market for you know solid action movies has never gone away. I mean, a lot of these movies used to go straight to DVD or straight to cable, and now they go straight to Netflix or other streaming services that are hungry for content. And so my second pick, uh, you can watch right now on Netflix. It is called Kill Zone 2. It's also known as SPL2, A Time for Consequences, which is a really hilarious <laughs> subtitle for a movie about uh, like prison fights. Um, it's, I guess it is a sequel. It's basically a sequel in name only, though, as far as I can tell. I've never seen the original Kill Zone or the original SPL, and I did not have any problem following along in this movie. Um, I'm pretty sure that the movies have different directors, different stars, different characters, unconnected plots. It's really a case of, I guess, this first SPL or first Kill Zone made a lot of money. Um, and so they said, we're making another one, even though they have totally different people or mostly different people involved. The stars of this one are Tony Jaa, who you probably 
probably know from uh, mm-hmm. martial arts movies like Ang Bak and The Protector, and Wu Jing, who is the star of the very popular Wolf Warrior movies. I think we had Wolf Warrior 2 as a recent listener's choice option. Which was like, like, yeah, it didn't win, but it was like the, it's like the most successful movie of all time in China now or something like that. So we were very curious to watch that. We'll have to do that some other time. But he is the, the co-lead with Tony Jaa. He plays an undercover cop who winds up in this prison in Thailand where Tony Jaa's character is a guard. And in their very first meeting, they get into an elaborate fight. Tony Jaa gives Wu Jing a flying knee and sends him through a window in a door. So right then and there, I gave this film my highest possible rating, 100 out of 100 <laughs> stars. Um, sort of like Manhunt, there's a very elaborate storyline. It's probably more convoluted than it needs to be. There's heart transplants, criminal gangs, bone marrow donors, human trafficking, and also Tony Jock giving people flying knees through various plates of glass. But um, the fighting in this movie is, I must admit, better than uh, the fighting and action in Manhunt. Some very nifty choreography. There's very good cinematography. There's this crazy shot in one of the early scenes where it looks like the characters are jumping off of like a balcony at an airport down to the ground below and the camera like jumps out of the window with them and falls to the ground. It's just, I mean, it's very clearly, it is like some kind of special effect, but it looks really great. Um, this one was a recommendation of a friend of mine, Rob Sweeney, who um, is a writer for Streamline used to go by a different name, I think, Movie Morlocks, but now it's called Streamline. That's the official blog of Filmstruck. And he's a big fan of action movies in general, but also Hong Kong action movies. And, and, I, and so he had suggested I look at this one. And I liked how he described this, this movie on Streamline in his list of the best uh, action movies of 2015, which is when this film uh, came out. He wrote, This is an anxious film, racked with paranoia, and director Soi Chang sustains a tone of barely contained hysteria. People are profitable blood bags for Louis Ku, who is the head of the human trafficking ring in the film, and the movie continually emphasizes the brute limitations of the human body. And uh, that is very nicely put, and also there is a scene at the end um, between our two heroes and one of the bad guys that ends with this ridiculous hanging out the window gag that I had never seen in any movie before and found absolutely delightful and kind of had me chuckling and applauding and I loved it. So if you are looking for a more modern uh, a Hong Kong action film, but very much indebted to the to the old the older films, and it, how sad is it that these movies are now the older films that's i'm gonna cry now we we are the older ones (laughs) yeah it's really sad but what is not sad is the movie kill zone 2 it is a delight it is available right now on netflix okay apologies for the uh the uh the sound on this episode we had to record at the last minute over skype we've got a sick baby here at the singer household very sick so the only way we could get this episode up and do it in time was to do it this way so uh, hopefully next episode we will sound like we are sitting in the same room because we will be. Um, in the meantime, thank you for your, your patience and, um, you can write your letters to, uh, the baby and I'll, I'll read them all to her and shake my fist. And I'm sure she'll be very, very upset about all that. And it'll be wonderful. But, uh, in the meantime, let's do behind the eight ball where we wrap up our show with some recommendations of some new titles that have just popped up on streaming. We share some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also share one film or TV show that has been chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, I believe you are going first this time. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Amazon and Hulu is Beatrice at Dinner, uh, the 2017 comedy drama from Miguel Arteta and written by Mike White. Uh, they made uh, the, this is a collaboration that is responsible for The Good Girl and Chuck and Buck. It's also Mike White's second film from last year, the other being your favorite, Matt, Brad Status. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this one, I would say, I like Brad Status a little more than you do, but I think that Beatrice at Dinner is the better film, and it has a great Salma Hayek performance. 
uh, in this character. That's a very Mike White kind of character where the, the character seems both on the side of right but is also so grating sometimes. It's it's wonderful. Uh, so that is on Amazon and Hulu. New to Amazon is The Student, a Russian film by Kirill Serebrenikov uh, that played at Cannes in 2016 and got a lot of acclaim and is about a young man who becomes a kind of religious fanatic and slowly, uh, you know, shapes everything at his school and forces people to accommodate like these uh, points of view that sometimes it feels like he he takes on just because they are a means of of getting power. Uh, an interesting movie, uh, The Student on Amazon. And finally, also new to Amazon, a movie I have not seen but immediately would like to do whenever Sunday I have free time. It is Shanghai Joe, a 1973 spaghetti western and also a kung fu film directed by Mario Cayano, starring Chun-Li as Shanghai Joe, who is a Chinese immigrant who arrives in Texas, uh, encounters racism, encounters a slave trader who is uh, enslaving Mexican workers. And of course, he fights them using his martial arts prowess. This also happens to star Klaus Kinski as a scalp hunter. And also has a character named Burying Sam, which I thought is just a great name. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? All right, first up we've got one from Tom in Westfield, New Jersey, who writes, I'd like to recommend a film called Breathe, available on Netflix, a 2014 French movie directed by Melanie Laurent, who you might recognize from her acting roles in Inglorious Bastards or Enemy. This is a relatable teen drama about the complicated twists and turns of a friendship between two teen girls when their incendiary relationship starts to fall apart. It features a jaw-dropping, long-take, climactic scene that will leave the viewer just completely wrecked. Thank you for that, Tom. And next up, we have one from Rick in Baudet, Minnesota, uh, who recommends, he recommended a few things, but recommends images on Amazon Prime. This is one of those lesser seen Altman movies that I was thrilled to notice pop up on Prime. It feels much smaller for a Robert Altman film with only a few actors and sets. It could almost be a play, but it has a great atmosphere to it. The story revolves around Catherine, who has been hearing and seeing things. Her husband's solution is to go for a stay at their vacation home. The Irish exteriors are beautiful, but this is not a good solution for Catherine's troubles. Catherine is played by Susanna York, who also co-wrote the film, and she has one of the most frantic and bone-chilling screams you will ever hear. It's not a very scary film, but her dealing with her psychosis, or is it? Uh, and the subtle tricks Altman re plays really make the movie. It's a great performance by her. There's also a really haunting score by John Williams that was an unexpected surprise. So, thank you for that, Rick. Alright, and one film by number five on my list. You gave me number six. Number six is a movie called Catching Feelings that I saw pop up. It's actually a, it's one of the many Netflix original movies that get kind of tossed out into the, their flow of content with uh, not necessarily a ton of uh, press done for them. But this one caught my eye because it is a South African film. It's a, it's a self-described dark romantic comedy about uh, a writer turned professor and his wife who live in Johannesburg. And they kind of have their lives turned upside down when this famous hard partying older author ends up staying with them. And it's written and directed and stars Kagiso Ladiga, uh, who is a South African comedian and filmmaker. And uh, I just found it interesting. So I added it to my my list. Okay, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Give me three new releases. Okay, first up on Netflix, if you enjoyed Wild Wild Country, which we talked about on the show a few weeks back, you might want to check out Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. Also produced by the Duplass brothers, who now, I guess, have decided they're just going to be the producers of really great serialized doc series. I don't know where that came from, but now that's a thing. Uh, this show is kind of more mystery and investigation than Wild Wild Country, which was more kind of a little more straight documentary. 
but it does have a lot of archival footage and interviews with the surviving participants. It is about this very strange bank heist involving a pizza delivery man wearing a bomb collar and this elaborate treasure hunt. Uh, My wife and I started this um, the last uh, night we had to ourselves, which... I think was maybe four years ago, but uh, we watched one episode and we really dug it. It is a little more graphically violent than Wild Wild Country, so I would let people know that. They would be aware of that. But uh, I think if you enjoyed that show, you will probably enjoy this show. And it is only four episodes long, so uh, it's not as much of a commitment either, which is nice. So that is Evil Genius streaming on Netflix. Next up on Filmstruck is Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, one of the greatest and most cynical movies ever made about journalism. Kirk Douglas plays an amoral and perpetually unemployed reporter who stumbles on a man stuck in a cave and uses his story to turn his career around, manipulating everyone he meets. He manages to turn this guy's situation into a national sensation, possibly at the cost of the poor victim's life. It is very dark, very bleak, but what would you expect from the director of Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity? You can hear more about the film on Film Spotting SVU number six. Only 156 episodes or so ago, <laughs> we reviewed this movie in depth as part of a podcast all about journalism movies. So, Ace in the Hole on Filmstruck is option two. Finally, I am looking forward to the return on Netflix on May 25th of The Toys That Made Us, another Netflix doc series. This is about various iconic toy brands of the 60s, 70s, and 80s and their origins. And certainly it is designed to appeal to folks like me who are you know, nostalgic for their childhoods, nostalgic for the toys of their childhoods, um, like G.I. Joe, He-Man, Star Wars. But I watched the whole first season on a, in a long flight not that long ago. And I watched all of those plus the the fourth episode. There were four episodes in the first season. The fourth episode was Barbie, which, frankly, that was an awesome episode. And I was very pleasantly surprised to see that it's not just old nerds fawning over toys. Each episode is actually – it's a documentary about a toy company, basically, and how toys are created and how they are – in some cases, they are bickered over and, like – this all this corporate infighting and who gets credit and who makes gets rich and the internal warfare between the departments. So I, I actually thought the show was surprisingly well done and surprisingly like compelling and um, more than the sort of nostalgia fest I expected. The new season, uh, again on May twenty fifth, the episodes this time are going to be about Legos. Transformers, Hello Kitty, and Star Trek. So that should be a pretty good batch. I am looking forward to uh, looking forward to the show coming back. Uh, it's a pretty good show. The Toys That Made Us, uh, streaming on Netflix. The first season you can do right now. The second season's on May twenty fifth. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. I wanted to recommend, first of all, this is from Aaron, writes, I wanted to recommend Miranda July's second film, The Future, currently streaming on Amazon Prime. I feel like most people have heard about and seen July's, I keep saying her name wrong, but Miranda July's debut film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, which is also great. But the future always felt much more audacious and bold on a whole other level. What starts as a quirky indie comedy eventually becomes a surreal and abstract examination on life in your late 20s, responsibility, and the magnitude of time. Plus, Miranda July... I keep saying her name like that. What's wrong with me? Voices a cat named Pawpaw. What's not to love? It might not be for everybody, but I hope it's for some people out there. So that is a recommendation from Aaron for The Future which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Our next recommendation comes from Leslie Lewis. Leslie writes, I'm recommending the old TV series Third Rock from the Sun, currently streaming on Amazon. This was a favorite show for me in the 90s. I find that this silly, sly, and innovative show has held up well over time. Third Rock drops jello-fearing aliens into a small town on Earth. Not a new premise, but probably the best version of it. The characters include a narcissistic leader played by John Lithgow, an old dude in a teenager's body playing, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a super soldier in a woman's body played by Kristen Johnson, and a puckish 
AI or whatever he's supposed to be, played by French Stewart. Oh, French, God, I totally forgot French Stewart on this show until I just read it. <laughs> there are some smashing guest characters, including William Shatner. Also, you get Jane Curtin, Jan Hooks, and John Cleese. If you haven't seen the show or you're just looking for a revisit, be prepared for a show that is binge-tastic. With the exception of The Good Place, there isn't a show on broadcast TV that can match the clever writing on this oldie. And thank you, guys. You are the chocolate cake of podcasts. So that was a recommendation from Leslie for Third Rock from the Sun, streaming on Amazon. All right. Now give me one from your my list. Okay, you gave me number 10, and number 10 on my list, my, 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 my list is Rogue One, a Star Wars story. A former thief leads an eccentric band, including a blind monk and an enemy robot, on a mission to steal plans for a powerful Imperial space station. Spoiler alert, it's the Death Star. Um, I just added this because there's a new Star Wars movie coming out, I believe, this week. And I was thinking about possibly revisiting this one. It is one of, I think, two Star Wars movies that are on Netflix. This and the animated film The Clone Wars. FYI. All right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. I believe Allison mentioned this first one amongst her recommendations. It is Beatrice at Dinner, which is currently available on Hulu and Amazon. She described it very well, I thought, but uh, directed by Miguel Arteta, starring Salma Hayek, a John Lithgow, not playing his Third Rock from the Sun character, playing a very different character, Connie Britton, Jay Duplass. A holistic medicine practitioner attends a wealthy client's dinner party after her car breaks down. Allison, if we picked Beatrice at the din- at dinner, which I've also seen, it is a good movie. What what what, what are you what are you thinking for possible theme options? I don't know. I mean, there are, maybe we could do something about dinner party movies or movies that take place. You know, have like a meal as a major major sequence That's because I feel good. like. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of interesting movies out there that have a centerpiece that is a a tense or dramatic meal. Yeah, that's a good idea. And I definitely think we could do uh, dinner parties. I think there's probably enough dinner party movies we could just do dinner parties, but we could expand it if we want. That's a, that's, that's a good idea. So that's option number one, Beatrice at Dinner, uh, streaming now on Hulu and Amazon. Option number two is streaming on Hulu. It's In the Fade. Last year's Fatih Aiken film starring Diane Kruger as Katya, a German woman whose life falls apart after her husband, uh, who is of Turkish descent, and their son are both killed in a bombing. And uh, this movie got Kruger a lot of attention for her acting. And I, I think she won a prize at Cannes and certainly was for a while being discussed as a long shot for the Oscars. Didn't come together, but certainly she like gives it her all in this movie. Uh, and I think, I don't know what we could do for this one. Maybe we could do movies about, well, I don't know, movies about grief sounds like a real winner of the whole, whole episode. Maybe we could do movies about people contempt, uh, considering revenge, because uh-huh. that is certainly an aspect of this movie as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a, it, it's, an, it's a movie that contains a lot of deep emotions. So there are various things we could use to jump off from there. Okay, option number three, which will be available on Hulu on May 31st, is I, Tanya, directed by Craig Gillespie, starring Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding, and Sebastian Stan as the Winter Soldier. Oh, I'm sorry, as Jeff Galuli. Uh, and uh, hmm. this is the recent biopic uh, all about Tanya Harding, about the infamous uh, Nancy Kerrigan incident. What happened, what each of the characters in the film claims happened, because they have different stories, and how we uh, process these stories, and how the media circus uh, around these events affected uh, Tanya Harding's life. I suppose we could do um, maybe unconventional biopics, so that could be a, an option for, mm. for I, Tanya. We could also do like movies that are influenced by Scorsese. Because to me, this movie was definitely mm-hmm. influenced by Scorsese. So there's probably a lot of movies we could talk about that are Scorsese-esque. 
We could we could make a mm-hmm. whole new genre. So that's another a second option for that one. So that is option number three. I Tanya, which is going to be streaming on Hulu starting on May thirty first. All right. Well, now it's all up to you. Tell us which of these streaming options we should review on the next episode by voting in the poll. That's at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. Uh, we'll also post links to the poll in our social media feeds. We're on Facebook and Twitter at filmspottingsvu. And you've got until Monday, May 28th at noon to vote. Uh, that's when we announce the winner, giving you about a week uh, if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, June 5th. In addition to being able to vote at filmspottingsvu.com, that's also where you can find our episode archive, complete with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles mentioned on the show. The Film Spotting SV remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you should definitely also follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new on streaming that you might want to know about. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.